Welcome to Couch Time. I am your host, Susie, a licensed marriage and family therapist, joined by my co-host, Janet, licensed clinical social worker. Thank you for joining our show where we dive into topics like mental health and relationship wellness, along with sharing our experiences and lessons learned on our road to licensure and building a private practice. You can connect with us at roadtowellness.co and susiehologian.com, where you can also find show notes for this episode. Welcome to Couch Time Podcast. This is Janet Byramian, and I'm joined by my colleague. Hi, everyone. I'm Susie. And today we're going to talk about journey towards licensure. So this is for all of our therapist listeners who are already in the field or maybe thinking about getting into the field. Maybe you're in grad school, maybe you're applying to grad school, or maybe you're pre-licensed and working towards your licensure process. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about our own experiences. We're going to talk about weird moments that we've had within that process with supervisors. So let's get into it. Yeah, I this this brings up a lot of weird, nostalgic feelings for me whenever this topic comes up. Nostalgia is a good word. And I would also say maybe even like horrifying moments too. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where you, you can really dive into it and talk about it, or you could just run away and never speak of it again. Yeah. I can see that. I can think of probably a few experiences where I don't want to relive it. Yeah. I definitely wouldn't want to relive it. I think I'm a little bit okay on, you know, talking over it. You know, that's actually a good question. If you had to do it all over again, would the process of doing it be worth it? Because I'm going to preface this by saying I'm sure almost every therapist out there would say, yes, the help that you provide and you know the rewarding feeling you get working with clients is absolutely worth it. But is the process worth it? That is a good question. So before we go into that, let's just give some background for maybe those who don't know. So in order to become a licensed therapist, no matter what route you go through, if you get your MFT license or LCSW license, every state requires certain requirements. So you, of course, have to go to grad school, get either at least your master's degree or a doctoral degree, PhD, PsyD degree. And then from there, once you're graduated or even during your graduate school process, you have to work towards certain number of hours towards your licensure to become ready to sit for your license exam and then become licensed. I know in the state of California, for you, Susie, remind me for the MFT license. So to get your MFT license, you have to do a total of 3,000 clinical hours. And that includes face-to-face hours with clients. It includes supervision. Luckily, they also let you count a few other straggling things here and there. Like if you do any workshops or conferences, your notes So it is 3,000 and then you get to sit for your exam. Well, prior to that, you have to take a law and ethics exam. So it's kind of a lengthy process. Janet, what about yours? So I'm an LCSW. It's similar, but a little bit different. They recently changed the law, but in my time, 
which was not that long ago. I got licensed in 2019, and I believe this law changed sometime either in 2019 or 2020. Um, they changed it so it was also 3,000 hours. But in my time, I had to do 3,200 hours of clinical hours to be able to sit for my licensure exam. Mm -hmm. What I will say is, every state is different. So I learned that in the state of Florida, they don't require as much, they require 1500 hours. So essentially half that. So every state is different. Every state has their own process. So if you're interested in working towards that, please check with your state regulatory board. For me, I checked the California Board of Behavioral Sciences. It was the same for you, Susie, but I know in Florida, they separated out. So there's a Florida board of social work. There's a Florida board of counselors. So you definitely need to check with your state and the correct regulatory board based upon your graduate school studies and what license you are working towards. Right. And I will also add that I think a lot of people think that it sometimes it could be this one blanket you know, exam that you take and it covers everything and you get to have portability throughout states. And that isn't always the case. You know, there are state exams and then there is a national exam as well. But even within that, like you said, there are differences of prerequisites that you have to complete before you can get licensed in that state. So it is really important to consider that when you are thinking of entering a grad program or entering the field and wanting to go toward licensure? To answer your question, would I do this process again? Because to do 3,200 hours, and mind you, they don't allow social workers to start those hours while in grad school. We have to start fresh once we graduate. It took me three years to finish those hours. And I was doing it full time. Like I was working a 40 hour a week job. Not everyone does that. It took me three years, which is a while. Mm -hmm. I would do it again. I would just do things a little bit differently. And that would actually start from my grad school education process. If I could go back in time, I would probably do like a dual degree of some sort. I would still get my MSW because I'm very proud of that degree, but I'd also want to sprinkle in some sort of business program. So if I could do like a dual MSW MBA degree, I totally would have done that. Could I have gone back? Because unfortunately, what a lot of our grad school programs are lacking is an emphasis on how to start your own business. Maybe if you wanted to like become a director, run a nonprofit or run a program, I don't know that they really prepare us for that. So I would have totally gotten some business, either degrees, certification, something like that to supplement the clinical understanding. I hear you. I feel like the business side of how life works really needs to start getting integrated into education as early as we can. You know, we hear the younger generation talking about this all the time of saying, you know, instead of learning X, Y, and Z in high school, I wish I would have gotten a lesson on what taxes are or how to, how to, you know, start a business, how to, how to pursue these things that we're all inevitably going to have to learn how to do. And I agree. I think especially for master's programs and and higher education programs where you are entering a specific field, there needs to be a little bit more of an overview of how to actually be successful in that field. 
and how to how to start that process. It is a brutal process. And the fact that for your licensure, you weren't able to count those hours that you are required to do while you're in school. That is, that's, that's tough. Cause yeah. that's a lot of hours when I, I mean, even when you said, you know, it moved from 3,200 to 3,000 people might be listening to this and thinking, okay, you guys, you did 3000 hours. What's an extra 200 hours. But when you're actually doing those hours and when you're hitting your maximum limits of certain hours that you're able to count, those last few hours feel like they get so dragged out. Yeah. Um, hours are like eternity. I felt like the last hundred hours took me forever to complete. I, I swear like the, the 1500 in between like sandwich between like the first few hundred here and there flies by, you just see those numbers shooting up and you get this false confidence and you're like, Oh my goodness, I'm going to be finished with my hours by the end of the year. And then, like you said, you're sitting there three years later, wondering how you're supposed to get four more hours. It just feels like those, those never end. And, you know, as an, on the MFT licensure track, I was super fortunate enough to be able to count the hours that I did while I was in school. Mm -hmm. And I ended up maxing out on those hours because I was working the maximum amount of hours that I was legally allowed to do. I maxed out while I was in school and had to stop counting my hours. And then I got to transfer those out. And then like you, I was working the full, you know, 40 hours that they let you count. I mean, side note, you're often working more than that. You just can't count more than that. And yeah, that last bit, I remember I had about, I specifically remember looking at my hours when I had 500 hours left and when I had 250 hours left. And that those, both of those portions felt like they took an eternity. It was really frustrating. I mean, on top of it, this definitely changes throughout the year, but the board of behavioral sciences, they are amazing. You know, they do so many things, but there's some room for improvement. When I submitted my hours and this was before the pandemic hit, before offices were shut down, before there was a lack of resources, I waited six and a half months until my hours were approved, which is definitely an outlying spike. But it's it's frustrating when you don't have any answers from a board that's supposed to be overseeing and supposed to help you along the process. So it's not just the crewing hours track that is a little frustrating in the field. That is insane because... For me, I was done with my hours in 2018 Mm -hmm. and they must have taken six and a half weeks to approve them. So, which is, which is the average. That's the average. So to wait six months, how do you put your life on hold for six months? And I know some of you guys that are listening, if you're not in the field, you may be thinking, what do you mean put your life on hold? I would say that we do because Mm -hmm. we don't have the opportunity to apply for certain jobs, let's say, until we get licensed. A lot of these jobs do require that you have your license. And in order for us to be able to get our license, we have to have our hours approved and then be able to be eligible to sit for our clinical exam. That's the process for licensure. And In terms of other aspects of life, I mean, we can also get a significant pay increase when we become licensed. So you're telling me that for six months, you know, I 
have to stay where I am and not be eligible for a pay increase, that's hard. So I agree with you that the board needs to do better. And just to sort of put it out there for people to understand why this can take such a long process. And we're only speaking on California, every other state is different. But the California Board of Behavioral Sciences is in charge of all applicants of all licensees. So that includes marriage and family therapists, that includes social workers, that includes PsyDs, PhDs, that includes licensed mental health counselors. You can break it down even more because within those you know, applicants, they also have applicants who are applying to become associates within those fields. So all of those licenses that you mentioned double it because there is a halfway point that people have to reach and they also have to get that application approved. So not to scare everyone out there, I think the current average is back to around six weeks. So you shouldn't be waiting too long for it. But like you said, Janet, it there is this part of you that puts your life on hold. You, you also have to start prepping yourself for, you know, to, to sit down and take the exam, whether you like to study long-term or you kind of work better if you wing it, you have difficulty being able to gauge and schedule your life when you don't know if you've been approved or not. Yeah. I remember when I was trying to get licensed, I was planning at around that time to move to Florida, but I couldn't move until I got licensed because I couldn't apply for any of the jobs that were possible in order for me to get licensed. So I was waiting on hold and six weeks is nothing in comparison to your six months. Had I been in your situation, I don't know what I would have done. So it is a challenge. And what I'll say about that too, is in terms of like the clinical hours that we've been talking about, what that also looks like is like for your MFT license, they do require that you work with specific populations for the social work license and those hours. We don't necessarily have to work with specific populations, but similarly, we have to have a certain number of hours of assessments and Mm -hmm. workshops and things like that but we need a supervisor to also approve those hours. The supervisor has to be of your same license. Uh, Actually, I'm gonna pull back on that. For the social workers, we need about 1600 of those hours to be approved by another licensed social worker. I'm sure with MFTs, it might be a little bit different. Yeah, so MFTs have a little bit more wiggle room when it comes to that. I believe as long as you are working under a licensed supervisor and to annotate there, you know, not everyone can supervise. You also have to have a certification to be able to supervise. I think it's usually a two to three year wait period before you can kind of take a course to be allowed to supervise. So for MFTs, it could be an LMFT or an LCSW. So we do have a little bit more wiggle room there, but there is absolutely no wiggle room when it comes to, and this is going to sound weird for people who aren't familiar with it, but there's a ratio of the number of hours of supervision you need in comparison to the number of clients that you see. Within that, there's also a difference of individual supervision, which is now triadic. So it could be you know, you, another associate and a supervisor or group supervision, which I believe is up to eight. Yes. I believe so, so up to eight. 
And, you know, those are also counted differently. So all of those things need to be taken into consideration. And those hours are so important. You need supervision, especially when in your training, but it is difficult to work all of those hours plus notes, plus assessments, treatment planning into your day, you know, whether you are an associate and aren't in school anymore, or you're a trainee and you are still in school. With regards to supervision, what that can really look like is it's an opportunity for the clinician. So the associate to either bring up cases, bring up questions, bring up concerns, clinically conceptualize. Also, we mentioned workshops, you know, so there, there can be opportunities for that. So we're going to transition now and go into discussion about some of our great supervision experiences and then also some of our not so great supervision experiences. So Please take notes if you're in the field or if you're interested in getting in the field, because we want you to know what those red flags are. While we're jumping in there, I want to say when you are in an agency setting, you don't always have a lot to work with and we'll have to find ways to get on the same page as your clinical supervisor. Janet, like you said, start taking notes here, because if you are looking for, say, a private practice supervisor, there are a bunch of things that I don't think I ever considered or was cautioned to consider when I was looking for supervisors, when I was, you know, when I had graduated and was looking for my own supervisor to start working in private practice. We don't want to scare you guys, but we're going to get started on some really interesting (laughs) situations. I had the pleasure of both opportunities. So I received supervision both in an agency setting and supervision in private practice. What I have to say is it was two very different experiences. So my supervisors in the agency, of course, there was discussions with regards to our cases and the families and individuals that we worked with. But a big part of it too was we had to figure out and understand the agency policies and the agency requirements. So we had to understand what is required of our documentation, what is required in terms of um, reporting rules, what is required in terms of assessments, in terms of productivity hours. So in my agency experience, at least at the beginning, a big part of it was administrative in nature and understanding the protocols and what I needed to do in that particular setting. So if you do plan to work in an agency or some sort of a nonprofit, just expect that. That's very normal. Mm-hmm. For me, it, it took me just a couple of weeks to sort of get the hang of all of the administrative stuff. And then we were able to jump into more of like the cl- clinical cases. And that's normal, particularly if you are fresh out of grad school and it's your first time in an agency setting, it will take a little bit of time to get used to that process. Yeah. And I would say, especially when you are starting off in that place, having those settings are so helpful because you go into it, you might be seeing your first few clients and let's say a risk assessment or something possibly reportable does come up. For me, my experience with that in in my agency setting was really great because I never felt like I was alone. There was always either a clinical supervisor or someone administrative there ready to step in, ready to help, ready to kind of help you through that process. So 
I think when it came to that aspect of it, I loved having just a strong team surrounding you. Yes, all the the agency policies always come into play and you inevitably end up tripping over each other a little bit when there is a disagreement on treatment or whether there's a disagreement on a modality to use. But when it came to stuff like that and the safety of clients, I felt like that's where being in a setting where you had group supervision, where you had administration and and supervisors above you watching everything that's going on really important and really helpful. Yeah, so that's definitely one of the pros of getting your clinical hours in an agency setting because, yeah, you're not alone in a private practice, so you do have that support. You do have always somebody there to ask questions for or if you need someone to kind of back you up. A lot of supervisors in agency settings, they are on call too. So if you have a question that's you know late in the day, I know my experience was I could always call my supervisor if something came up. So that was great. In addition, what I would say what's great about an agency setting is you do get your hours a lot faster than in a private practice setting. So like I said, I did the agency thing for over three years and I was able to log 40 hours a week Mm -hmm. and that was huge. And that's what I needed in order to be able to take my exam quickly as, or at least as quick as I possibly could. So for me, I would say if you're someone that wants to go on the fast track in terms of completion of your clinical hours, an agency setting might be a good place to look into. Right. So, you know, being in an agency setting helps you surf through your hours. It helps you surf through a usually a varying range of clients that come in with their things that they want to work on. It also helps you surf straight to burnout really quickly. So <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to like gloss, you know, gloss over that part because there is so much need. There are only so many places for people to go, especially when they're, we are talking about a nonprofit agency setting. Um, it's very easy to, to start drowning under the responsibilities as, you know, an associate, as a trainee in an agency setting because you can so very easily rack up the clients and the responsibilities that come with taking care of each client. Absolutely. So that's definitely something to maybe look into as more of like a downer or a con of an agency setting where you're right, unless you have really good boundaries or know how to do some really good self-care in that environment. The burnout is real. I know I experienced it. I know you experienced it. So I'm not certainly trying to say that it's easy. It is hard work. Yeah. I crawled out of my agency when I finally put in my two weeks and actually it wasn't two weeks. It was like two months, but it was, it felt like a mission to get through, but it was also you know, I look back at it and I'm so thankful because I received a stupid amount of hours toward my licensure at my agency. And I'll always be happy that I was able to to soar through those. But I, I wish, I mean, I wish I would have been on top of it, but I really do wish that at least my agency was more on top of taking care of their associates and trainees and making sure that burnout isn't happening and that you aren't, you are encouraging self-care. And when there are concerns coming up of therapists not being able to handle a caseload or or needing a little bit more assistance that some agencies 
I think have a lot of room for improvement to to be more helpful in that situation. It's difficult to ask for it when you're in that type of a position. You know, you kind of feel like you almost become victim to accruing these hours and want to sacrifice all of these basic needs that you have in order to get the hours. I totally agree with that. I remember the job I expressed burnout and compassion fatigue, and the agency sent me to a training on burnout. <laughs> <I think laughs> More burnout. work? <laughs> well, I, I believe their intentions were helpful because I think the training wasn't about how to help client burnout. It was to help our own. Hmm. And I actually will say that it was helpful. I got okay. a couple of things out of it and burnout again is real. So we don't want to gloss over it. So maybe we could do like a separate episode on how to handle burnout. Yes. Um, Noted. But what I'll say too, is aside from advocating for yourself in an agency with regards to burnout, there's going to be advocacy in other ways, self-advocacy that needs to happen in other ways. So for me, again, as a LCSW, as a social worker, they did require that a certain number of hours be held by an LCSW and LCSWs were unfortunately actually limited in my agency. So I had to really advocate for that switch that I needed because I did start with an LMFT. So one of the things to also be aware of are just, again, your licensure requirements. If I wasn't aware of that, I could have totally messed everything up with myself. So be aware of who what kind of license needs to supervise you. And also you can check on the status of their license to make sure that the license is still in good standing and that they do have the ability and training to supervise. That is going to be really important. Otherwise your clinical hours, unfortunately will be rejected Mm -hmm. if those areas are not checked on and confirmed. So you can check on that on the California Board of Behavioral Sciences website as well as as long as you have their name or their license number. Right. And that is super important because if you go throughout the years getting your hours that way and you're unaware of that, you know, seemingly tiny detail, right? You won't know until you've turned your hours in. And they get turned back and get rejected. And that could that could really put someone back years. Yeah, that would probably feel like a disaster yeah. if that were to happen. So again, please be aware of what your board requires. The other piece of advocacy, this one's a little bit harder, but I know at least for the MFT license, they do require that you have a certain number of child hours couples therapy hours, social workers don't have that, at least to my knowledge, it might've changed. So it's also going to be very important if you work at something like an agency setting to advocate, I need more couples therapy hours, I need more child hours. Is this a population that you can help me with in terms of getting clients? That's going to be very important as well. I know for me, I worked at a child agency, so I had a plethora of child hours, not that I necessarily needed it, but, you know, I wanted to more so work with adults. So I have to advocate to work in more of the adult programs. So 
that's going to be important, you know, as well, working in an agency setting, because unfortunately how the culture sort of works is they just kind of throw clients at you. So you want to ask for what you're looking for. You want to ask for what you need, and you may be at your cap with clients. So it's going to be important to work on saying, no, I don't have any openings right now. Yeah, that actually did happen to me at one point. I I could have had all of my hours be child hours if if I let the agency do their thing. But there was a point in my training where I realized I know that I want to work with adults when I'm, you know, licensed. And if I spend my whole clinical training experience with children, I will never feel equipped to work with client with adult clients. Mm-hmm. So there was a point where I was capped with my hours and I weighed the cost benefit of it, but I ended up adding a day to start adding more adult clients. And eventually my hours did balance themselves out, but that was definitely something that, you know, I wish I would have advocated for earlier. And I would go as far as to say, these are good questions to be asking an agency when you're interviewing for them. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of us, we have to start applying to practicum sites within our usually second year of grad school. These are important questions to remember when you, you know, start interviewing for those. What I learned at my agency is you should always ask not necessarily the type of supervision that they're providing, What was really difficult at mine was what are the units of supervision available? So you might go into an agency thinking, oh my gosh, you guys keep talking about like being capped with clients and I'm not going to have a, have an issue with this. You can have an issue if there aren't enough supervisions available and this shouldn't be happening. But from most of my colleagues that I've spoken with who are in training with me, this does become an issue. There are, you know, either too many therapists that need group supervision and then they max out at the, at the number that can be there, or there aren't enough supervisors or there aren't enough time slots in order to provide supervision. So I would also inquire about how they go about making sure that their therapists are maintaining their client to supervision ratios. And that could be a really difficult one to to ask for because if there isn't, I guess, a high enough demand or if there, if there aren't enough funds to be able to bring in another supervision unit, then you might not be able to count all the hours that you're actually working. Yes. And then the question is, is that worth it for me? Is it worth it to sort of take that risk or that gamble? So these questions are incredibly important to ask if you do decide to work in an agency setting. We'll want to let's transition and talk about potentially in a private practice setting, the supervision that is something that you can get as well. Mm -hmm. And you can actually do it in tandem. That was my experience. It's not like one or the other. You can work in an agency and in a private practice at the same time and get those hours at the same time. You can just max out at counting 40 hours per week total. In my experience in private practice supervision, I liked a little a little bit more. One of the cons around it is the hours that I was getting was a lot lower than in, in an agency setting. So maybe I was able to count five hours a week, six, seven hours a week. But I was okay with that because I had so many hours that I was counting at the agency. So if 
private practice supervision is the only way with regards to seeing clients, then the hours that you're going to get will probably take a little bit longer in order to count. So that is one aspect to look into. The other aspect that what I would say I liked and what I preferred is that I really enjoyed that I was able to choose a supervisor that had the experience and working with the population that I was looking for. So I was looking for someone that had a lot of experience doing trauma therapy and working with couples because that was something I was interested in. And she was great in terms of having that clinical knowledge and able to educate me and teach me versus in an agency setting, it was a little bit more the population that the agency was geared towards. Right. Private practice feels like a customizable mini projection into what your future practice can look like if that's what you're interested in doing. And, you know, for the reasons that you you listed of being able to find someone who works within the population that you're interested in or the population that you want a little bit more education and training on is so important. Also, being able to get individual supervision is well, it's a necessity. So for, for MFTs, you need at least a year of individual supervision. So not every agency is able to provide that. I know mine wasn't. And I loved being able to get that one-on-one experience with my private practice supervisor. It felt really personal. It felt like I could get into, you know, this real details and even hypotheticals and and speculations of working with a client, you don't necessarily have the time to get into when you're working with a group supervisor in supervision. I will say though, I did miss the group supervision aspect, especially when you have a set of therapists who are kind of on the same level as you are going through similar training and, and have a similar population of clients that they're working with. Being able to bounce those ideas off of each other was really helpful for me. And of course, I could always do that with my private practice supervisor, but I think there's a different dynamic there when you do it with with other therapists in similar training stages as you are. But yeah, doing it in private practice is a completely different experience. Right. What I'll say about private practice too, is that in addition to gaining the specific clinical knowledge, maybe that you're looking for, you also do have an opportunity to, you know, learn a little bit more about the business side of running a private practice. And if you're clinical supervisor in private practice is willing to share and teach you about kind of the ins and outs of that. That's also a great opportunity. Now, what I'll say is that might be a question to ask and sort of vet them in the interview process as well, because not all supervisors do teach about the business end of it. Some just still want to focus on the clinical component. So that can be something to ask. It would also be a great opportunity. And that's one of the other pieces that I liked about the private practices experience, because I was able to learn about, you know, what paperwork is required to have in private practice. How do I use an electronic health record system? How do I bill my own clients? You know, that's another great opportunity too. Yeah. And it gives you you know, the hands-on opportunity to do it. I don't know if this was the same for you, Janet, but in my agency, there was administrative staff doing all of that. So 
I wouldn't know how to charge a client or how to do the the agency initial intake on my own if it wasn't being done for me almost. So being able to see that back end of it in private practice was a really cool experience because it gives you an idea of those things that, you know, like we mentioned earlier, school doesn't necessarily teach you. You know, they give you a list of things that you have to cover, you know, informed consent and privacy policy and all of these things, but to see it in action and to be in charge of it, it it elevates that the realness of being a therapist in the field. Mm-hmm. If that almost makes sense. Yeah, it's a completely different experience. You know, one of the other things about private practice too, depending on the supervisor you have, some clinicians, they accept insurance and some don't. So if you're, if you're, let's say, working with someone that accepts insurance, you can learn about how you can get credentialed, you can learn about how to bill with insurances versus if there are other clinicians that let's say don't accept insurance, you know, you can kind of learn why you can learn about how they market to clients that are not on insurance panels, for example. So it is, it it is a little bit more tailored, I would say, versus in an agency setting agencies are pretty much set to how they are and they they are that way for a really long time mm-hmm. you know it, it is unfortunately how you look at it but it is um, a bureaucratic system and it is required to be a certain way because of city and state regulations but private practice you know the clinicians have a little bit more freedom so you can learn a little bit more in terms of the ins and outs right and you know Going off of freedom, and you mentioned marketing as well, you almost never get to do this if you're in an agency, but you get to make connections and network and socialize and start advertising your services when you are in private practice. And it could be really, like you said, tailored to what you want to do, who you want to see, your specialties if if you're starting to hone in on those. And that gives you that opportunity to start building your future in the way that you want it to be once you do reach licensure. I don't know if you would be able to get that type of opportunity in an agency setting if your agency is geared specifically toward a population or a modality to use. To me, that felt like a whole new world when I started stepping into it. It was scary for me because I didn't have, my supervisor was very encouraging and very helpful in making sure that I understood that whatever I want, I have to pursue it. Right. But I didn't have that experience that I had, you know, other friends of their supervisor kind of doing all of that, like marketing and advertising and that business end for them. So being able to almost like get the freedom to do those things and get the push and, and the support to do those things really helped out in me understanding, okay, Maybe I had a different idea of what private practice was going to be like when I was stepping into school and now I'm actually getting to do it. And that it was really difficult and it was really scary, but it was so rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. So these are some of the points in terms of working towards licensure and sort of the differences in terms of getting your hours and the differences between supervision and private practice and supervision and agency. What I'll say is there's honestly no right or wrong. 
with this. Like everyone's path towards licensure is so unique and, you know, we have to do what's best for our lives. So however you get there, you know, keep going, stay persistent, have support in your life, work on the burnout. Self-care is so important. And we might actually do another episode on this because I still feel like there was so much that we weren't uncovering, like we kind of just scratched the surface today. So if you have any other questions about how to work towards your licensure, maybe which license is the best for you, or questions about agency or private practice experience, let us know. We want to hear what your questions are, and we can do a whole nother podcast episode on that entire process. You know, you're right. I think I started off saying, I don't want to talk about these things, but the more I get into it, it's so weird. I'm sure there's some pathology to this, but I love talking about it. it. Like the the pain of it and like remembering that nostalgia of it is is interesting, maybe in the aspect of being able to to help someone who, you know, was where we were a couple years ago in knowing what to look out for. And yes, it will be scary. And yes, it will feel like things will you know, those, that number will never reach 3000, but it does. And it does get easier and the pains are there for a reason. <laughs> yes. Well, good luck, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to us today. And we look forward to our topic next time. Take care. Thank you for joining us today on Couch Time. You can find show notes for this episode linked in the description, along with all our references and resources mentioned today. If you enjoyed this episode, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next one. We will chat again soon. Bye.